to the lost souls, the disintegrated spirits, the wanderers, the dreamers, and the seekers. Welcome to the Embodied Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle McGinnis. Our work in this podcast will be to foster healing, transformation, self-expression, creativity, and the development of consciousness. So with our intentions grounded firmly, let's settle in and do some integration work. All right, welcome back to this time another Deep End podcast with myself, Rick Alexander, and Dr. Danielle McGinnis. Yay, it's been a long time. I know, I've been wanting to do one, and I don't know how this one's going to go, but I should probably start out by saying that I drive a Subaru Crosstrek, and that might seem like it's not related to anything (laughs) Deep End related, but uh, I'm in the process of ending one lease and getting another one, and we are going to riff a little bit on the messaging that the advertisers like are coming out with and I think hopefully the conversation gets far deeper than a Subaru Crosstrek but the thing that we are going to riff on is the on the catalog the first thing or the thing that says on the front the sort of tagline on the catalog for the new Crosstreks is love is out there find it in a Crosstrek. No offense to anybody who is associated with Subaru or works for Subaru. Well, this has nothing to do with Subaru, actually. I think it has a general statement about what advertising and what marketing is trying to hit on in the American psyche. And it was interesting because you were talking about something that you were interested in. And I just like literally out of the periphery I just like saw it's like in tiny writing in the corner Mm. and I saw that as you were talking to me and like everything that you were saying kind of like faded out and I was like what is that that is not that is nuts advertising and it's like the same messaging around what the gods and what religion is in our modern culture it's out there it's somewhere out there. Mm. And if we just follow something, somebody, some object, we'll find it. Well, it's interesting that you say that because this is sort of the seduction, I think, of the intellect. Like, I think a lot of people have a superior thinking function in our country, even if they don't naturally. Like, we tend to, like, be taught in a way that, we, you know, we're always thinking that, like you just need to find the solution is there. I just need to know the right thing. I need to find the right concepts. I was just talking to a client about this. It's like we can, especially in the personal development world, we get very like, I just need to find the right information and that's going to solve my problem. And I know it's out there if I just keep looking and yet we can never think our way out of our problems. And we have access to all of the depth in the world, all of the poetry, but yet there's a disconnect between thinking it's out there somewhere and actually being able to embody whatever it is that we find. Well, that's interesting because what is coming up as you speak about that? So right now, I am reading The Master and His Emissary by Anne McGilchrist. Mm -hmm. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, And he's talking about what I found really, really fascinating. Probably the the section that stuck stuck out to me the most in that book thus far is there are association, associations to areas in our left brain that 
are associated with language, okay? And they're very, very close to the areas in our left brain that control grasping, like actual motor grasping, like with our hands, Hmm. like the function of our hands. And if we look at that metaphorically and symbolically, I think that's how we approach a lot of our inner work is to grasp for things. Mm. And that's what the left hemisphere actually prioritizes is grasping at certain things so that they can be integrated for use and utility. And it's more directed through willpower versus uncertainty in the search for certainty, as opposed to the right hemisphere, which prioritizes, you know, the embodied experience of connection and empathy and experiencing the world and certainty is not necessary and it's looking at things as a whole and metaphorically and it's it's really not it's that grasping is not necessary and that's not to say that there's not aspects of the right hemispheric properties that exist in the left hemisphere they kind of function together but I think that that's really important because I think that there is a prioritization of that attempt to grasp at things when we're approaching, you know, in today's podcast, we're talking about love. It's like we're grasping for it as opposed to connecting to that right hemispheric way of being that experiences love everywhere. You're not separate from it. Um, I don't know. I mean, just that's what came up for me. Yeah, it's, really it's interesting because I didn't. I haven't watched TV for a long time. I mean, because we watch like streaming services, but with the football season, I like was watching TV again, and just like I think probably driving you nuts, but just noticing the messaging of ed- every single advertisement is like you're not enough, but you could be. You don't have the answers, but we do. Like there's this constant, if you just watch, it's like, what is the, you know, what's the narrative that I'm hearing over and over and over? And I'm just paying attention to it because I'm like, haven't watched commercials in a long time leading into this year, you know? And so I'm like paying attention to it and I'm like, man, this is crazy because the, we're constantly being fed the, 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 constantly being fed the narrative that our answer is somewhere out there. And that if we could just get this next thing and it's like, that's how we live our lives. Like, I mean, that's how I've lived my life for so long. It's like, oh, once I get this job, then I'll be happy. Once I get this next thing, once I get this next amount of money, then I'll be fine. Once I get this, and there's always a next and there's never a satiation. And then like we live on this sort of treadmill of thinking that our, what we actually need is somewhere off in the distance. And if we can just tread long enough, we'll actually get it. Well, that's interesting I feel like I keep bringing this back to like physiology, but I'm like, well, what does that mythology, right? Because that is a myth that is playing out. It's a pattern. It's a story that's playing out in our culture. Like, what does that say about our nervous system? You know, and it says to me that there's not a lot of capacity to contain the present moment and that the safety that in resource and love that we're actually seeking in the body 
you can't find it until the future or the next thing. Like what I was hearing when you were speaking there was like very future oriented. Mm-hmm. Like presence isn't a part of the picture and the advertising. Right, right. right. And I mean, I think that's part of the game that it's built upon. Yeah. Right. But I think that that's been a really big struggle of mine to be aware of. Like, I hired a social media team because I was like, I'm like done with this marketing game. But I also was very particular in giving them feedback in the way that they word things so that it isn't like that. Mm. And that's been like a really interesting back and forth and I'm just so I'm very pleased with um learning from them but them learning from me too and infusing more presence and like you're okay as you are and like even if it's imperfect and not what you're wanting that's also okay too and working from that place as opposed to like working from a place of lack or not enoughness or the next thing, or this kind of, I don't know. Yeah, because that's what I think, that's what I just thought of when you were saying that, is like, you're working from a different place. Not there's all these problems I have to fix, but things are, that I'm okay as I am. And I think acceptance is huge in this, like being accepted as you are. And, And the difference of trying to work through your sort of, what you conceive as your life problems from a place of acceptance as you are and the way that you approach those problems if you think that you're not good enough until those problems are resolved is so much different. Man, what do you think that the connection between like what we're circling around, so you're not okay as you are, acceptance, and love? Yeah, so when I think about love I think hmm. in some sense I think we have to talk the problem with the English language and the word love is that there's only the word love right Mm -hmm. so it's like what are we talking about if we use the word love like sometimes we mean goodbye when we say I love you right sometimes we mean we really like our sneakers right but then there's also this sort of agape love which is this religious love that's been affiliated with the phenomenon of god and things like that and that's where i get into acceptance like i think what love is in the sort of capital l archetypal love is is this sort of at its core acceptance and i think that's why when these religions pop up and you look at like the christ myth where this person is a is an avatar of god most high right is what the idea there but the thing that's interesting is that all the thing he keeps saying, like the substructure of all of this is grace. You know, like I'm thinking of this moment where he's about to, I talk about this all the time, but like where all these people are about to stone this lady and he's like, great. So if you haven't, if you haven't done anything wrong, you know, throw the first stone, let's kill her, you know? And then everybody leaves. And then he's like, well, neither do I judge you. Right. So like the, the, all of the sort of religions that we have in the mythologies that we have, where we're like trying to discern the nature of reality we end up in this place of sort of constant acceptance, but none of us actually accept that, which is really fascinating mm. to me. So, so is it the lack of accepting that keeps us from accepting ourselves and the present moment? Is it, say that one more time. Is it the inability to accept that as a 
maybe a fundamental truth. I don't want to like put yeah, that out there. Yeah, I think it's there. in our ontology. I do think that, yeah. But like our lack of accepting that keeps us locked away from accepting ourselves and the reality of the present moment. Yes, because when most people say love, even if they're talking about a partner or a family member or something, what they mean is, I do this role and you do that role. And as long as we play our roles to each other, then I love you. But there's a sort of deeper love, which is I don't need anything from you. I don't need you to change at all. And that's the sort of acceptance love that actually gives people permission to change, believe it or oh, not. man. <laughs> like having one of those moments we had in a deep end before where I'm like getting teary-eyed and emotional. Oh, I just think that there's something true about that. I do too. I've seen it with my clients. And it's interesting to turn towards... Okay, so I know we're kind of steering away from the cross-track advertisement. I actually want to get back to it, though, because I have more to say, but okay. But I think that what we're circling around here is that, like, maybe it's actual... The experience of love is seeing differently. Seeing the world and yourself and the role that you play in the world differently. What's interesting about that is that religions are a way of seeing. That's what I think we mistake about religion today is we think it's a belief system. It's a story we tell ourselves. And I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a way of interacting with and seeing the world. Well, that's okay. So let's take this. I don't want to get in this belief or <laughs> this belief debate that we have. But if we do go on this master and emissary section that I read to you about beliefs, mm-hmm. if beliefs are as if statements about your psychological uh, predisposition towards the world. Meaning I act as if this is true. I act as if. Yep. It might not be true right. for somebody else. But a belief is the acting as if. It's acting as if. Yes. So for me personally, in the experience of acting as if psyche is real, not meaning it's a place or a thing, but it's it has a reality to it, even if it's unknown and ineffable in mm-hmm. some way, but acting as if it is real and moving from that place has fundamentally changed the way that I see. Mm-hmm. And you could call that kind of a religious... It's because it's a religious way of knowing. It's actually called, like in Cog Sci, it's a participatory knowing. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer in the intellect up here, separated from life, looking for the perspective, but I'm I'm in a reciprocal relationship with it. And it's mm-hmm. informing what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that you say that because I'm like thinking of my history with religion and like growing up in church and like going to churches which I actually really do love to do, but the messaging is always about changing. It's the Subaru ad. Yes, always. It's never, hey, this person came here and said you are exactly perfect as you were exactly right as you are. Right. And now that's not to say that there aren't things you, you might want to change and work toward and, and but those things will happen. But again, it's like the question. Yeah, spontaneous. Yeah. So it's the question of, am I acting from a place of lack? I'm not enough, but I could be if I could only conform to these set of moral principles, ideas, doctrines, ideals, rules, whatever, versus 
I'm fully accepted now because you know all a lot of behavior, especially self-destructive behavior, if you actually believe that you are accepted and loved, you wouldn't exhibit that behavior. Okay, so let's pull on this thread because I think this is really important and I'm seeing it play out in a ton of my clients right now. Okay. Um, bumping into the darkest of the dark figures in their psyches. You could call them shadows, whatever you want to call them. They're their own beings, entities in the psychic space. And turning towards those characters from a place of that love where it's like, okay, so in the present moment, this internal figure, call it the self-saboteur, the inner tyrant, the harsh superego, whatever it mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. a demon, whatever you want to call it, that's just a function of language at that point. But turning towards that figure exactly where it is. So this is what it's doing. This is what it's influencing. This is what it's saying. This is what it values. This is what it believes. This is what it makes you believe. And just being with that, Mm. like literally not doing anything about it, but just seeing that, Mm. like seeing the darkness that exists in the totality of everything from a position of love. Like we don't have to destroy it. We don't have to conquer it. We don't have to change it because that actually, if we act as if psyche is real, the psyche has a beautiful way of regulating itself Mm -hmm. if we're working with it yeah right not against it and so turning towards these dark images with that type of love and presence game changer yeah like incredibly game changing for the people that i've worked with and it changes me in that process too because again hillman has this this kind of i guess it would be a methodology of seeing through, seeing through the literal, like what is literally showing up right now, a self-sabotaging behavior. That's mm-hmm. the literal. Yep. But if you see through that into the metaphorical and see that that's actually just one side of God and you can't see the other faces of God at this present moment because you're choosing to look at it from this one lens mm-hmm. that like doesn't allow you to see the totality i think when you when we open that up and you know hopefully i can act as a moderator for that process and contain that process for people because it's intense but it's really allowed people to change the way that they are interacting and engaging and feeling through the world seeing through mm-hmm. the world so yeah. Yeah. So this is where I think I can bring it back to Subaru because this, okay, if you watch a movie, we went to see Elf um, in concert. So the movie Elf, the Christmas movie this year, we went and saw with an orchestra. And the thing that was very fascinating to me is it felt like it made the whole movie new, even though I've seen it every Christmas for however long. 20 years. Yep. It made the whole thing new. And I noticed something else too, which is that the music, the rhythm that was behind the actual thing playing out is influencing the way I feel about what's happening. Far more than actually the sort of subjective thing of what's happening. Like a snowball fight. In the, like a snowball fight without music, without anything. You have a certain feeling. 
But if I add a sort of happiness to it and a feeling of coming together and then you see Will Ferrell and his brother kind of like connecting and now I'm experiencing the same snowball fight in a little bit of a different way. And movies and stories, do they use narration to do the same thing. So you'll hear a narrator, but you're watching the movie. And if, the, if you were watching a documentary without the narrator and it was just flashing videos, that would be a completely different message. Mm. And the reason I'm saying that is because I'm saying, well, what's narrating our actual everyday life in society? What's the narration? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's like, <laughs> it's interesting because I'm thinking about Hermes, who is associated with music, mm-hmm. right? The and messenger. This, yeah. The ability to like bring messages from the soul and connection from the soul to descend, ascend, like really traverse in those and wander in those inner spaces bridging the inner and the outer so that they're actually one and it's interesting because you're mentioning music there right so like that environment was infused with a type of soul right Mm -hmm. like Hermes was there Mm -hmm. in that in that arena that we went to and so we were able to see the same story that we've seen a thousand times but it was hitting in the soul Mm. it was like connecting to the soul that i don't think that that's available in our current culture right so if you walk go to the airport and just read every sign that you see watch the streaming letters watch the narration of our world listen you know because this is the thing it's like people think that we can watch all of these commercials and that it's not affecting our our conscious operating system and it's like no it's the narration of our world and it's constantly you're not enough but you could be love is out there you know it's so it's constantly like we're getting this slow drip of this messaging and this narration that's informing the way that we are feeling about ourselves and the the world that we're in so what does that say about the state of psyche in our modern culture right so if we go see elf and it's completely infused with soul Mm -hmm. and this hermetic connection to the deepening of our consciousness just by attending that experience but then in the everydayness in the mundane world there's this kind of disconnection in that experience of the world i'm wondering like what that god is or what that mythology is or myth i guess would be the better word um that's influencing that you know donald Calshed and trauma and the soul which we're going to do a book club on mm-hmm. um next but he talks about this character archetypal character as dis as disconnection dissociation disembodiment disease and i think it's something akin to that like that this, character is in association with trauma, is it? Yeah, it's it's the archetypal image that he associates with trauma. Having gone through trauma, like right. it's what's formed in the psyche afterward. Right, and okay. I'm thinking there's like some type of dis character that is influencing us culturally. Mm. Like it's not just in our individual experience. I see people have their own version of dis, mm-hmm. right? But... Um, I think culturally there's something connected to that on a, on a grander scale. And the way he sets that up in the book is he associates um, dis with the devil, 
being a fallen angel, like the angel that refuses to be embodied, Hmm. like, like how Christ becomes or Jesus becomes embodied, Mm -hmm. like the devil refuses embodiment. Hmm. And I'm wondering if that's, there's something akin to that, like circling around our culture right now that like, I think it's this ping pong back and forth. You see this kind of push towards embodiment, but then all this messaging that's like anti-embodiment, right? right? right. So I don't know. That's just what I'm circling around. But what do you think? You know, based on like the way that I kind of like engage with ideas like this is to me, it's an idea of what are you serving and, and not what are you serve, not what do you think you're serving? Not what do you tell yourself you're serving? What are you, what are your actions in service to? So let's talk about the prodigal son for a minute. So the prodigal son's a parable. And that point of a parable is to rearrange your perceptual lens. And what that means is you have a certain thing that you think is important. And if you want a deeper truth, if you want to understand God or love at a deeper level, you have to rearrange what you think is important so you can make space for that new thing to come in. Okay. Now, in the prodigal son's story, so there's two brothers. And their father is a, is a wealthy landowner and he owns a farm. Okay. One, one son goes to his father when he turns 18 and he asks for his inheritance early. Now, this is a blasphemous thing to do in the culture that this story came out of. Okay. His father's not dead, right? Okay. So he's saying, can I have half of your shit even though you're not dead yet? And he takes it and goes off into the world and leaves the family behind. Okay. Now, the other son stays and he works hard with the family and the father essentially assumes that the father, the son that left is actually dead because he took half the money and he left. Now, let's say he goes out whoring, goes to Vegas, loses all of his money. He's like out there just like really making a mess of his life. Okay. So he, so not only did he ask his father for his inheritance early, which is blasphemous, you know, which is just absurd to do, but he also squandered it and wasted it out in the world. Okay. Now, one day he comes, he comes home. Mm-hmm. And he comes walking down the road with nothing at all because he's lost everything that he has. Okay. And the father runs out to him and he gives him a hug. And he gives him a hug and he says, my, my son has retor- returned. Go prepare the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. My son is back. Okay. Right? And now the other son, the son that stayed is pissed because he's like, you've never killed the fattened calf for me. You've never thrown a party for me and I'm here all the time. And the mm-hmm. father is like, yep, your, son, your, your brother left and now he's returned. Mm-hmm. And so the, the reason that's a parable and the reason it causes you to like rearrange your perceptual lens is because the father is serving something beyond what society has said is important. He's serving acceptance and love. Okay. Right? And now what I think is, I don't think you've read that story well enough until you understand that the prodigal son is the story of the universe, personally. Mm. And that that father is God. Love, you could say. Okay. If you don't like the God word. So, but in essence, what's happening here is, yeah, I know you think it's important, like this money and this, all the validation, all the things that society has said important. I understand that. But what happens if we serve something bigger? I'm kind of like, I'm not stuck, but I'm like, I'm in this story that you have just told. And just trying to archetypally open this for people who are listening, right? So 
imagining that there are parts of them that are all of these, right? Yes, totally. Okay, so we have a part of us that is the sun that leaves and wanders and dissociates and acts from a place of perhaps greed, right? Mm -hmm. Like archetypal greed, like goes off. And then there's another part that seems like a very nuanced kind of trickster character because it's like I'm staying but I'm only staying and serving from a place of expectation to mm-hmm. receive something. Yeah, so this is what it's saying. is like we use the word love but we're actually thinking of this quid pro quo exchange. I okay. do this for you, I play this role and you play this role and that's what love is. And the story is opening up. It's saying, no, no. Love something bigger than that. Okay. Acceptance no matter what. So it's interesting because I'm thinking about these two sons, right? And how people can position them psychically to understand this. Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately sometimes we, our persona, how we act out into the world can be influenced by either of these, right? Some people might identify more closely to the one who has lost his way, has wandered away, right? Mm-hmm. And is quite far from a sense of home, like love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then others might identify with this, you know, people-pleasing, kind of serving, but like resentful and bitter and kind of feeling shitty about it, yeah. right? And I think that that's just something to deeply contemplate for people. It's like, so where are you in this position to love? Mm -hmm. And what is your expectation here in relation to if you were the wandering one, what would you think about the other son? If you were the son that stayed home, what would you think about the wandering one coming home? Like, Mm. I don't know. I just think that that's a deep contemplation. Right? Because I think a lot of, like, it's like, what eyes are you seeing the world through in that story? I for sure was the son who stayed and served and did the thing. Oh, and the then... son that left. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Here we are. Love yeah. brought us together. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I think, like, when I say that's the story of the universe, I mean it. Like, everybody's going home. Everybody gets to come to the party. And when you change the way that you see the world, that actually becomes true. Mm. Right. And so when people often, I think people will have a sense that they want to defend their division and defend their right to be separate and different and all that stuff. Like that kid, like that, the one that stayed, he's like, I'm playing by the rule. I deserve more. I want to be separate. I, and the father's saying, no, everybody comes to the party. Well, it's interesting, right? Because like I'm thinking about working with clients through this. And it's interesting to tap into where that love sits in their body, almost like 99.9%, it's in the heart, somatically, Mm -hmm. always in the heart space. And um, it's interesting because there is this deep knowing that that is true, that all parts belong, Mm. no matter if they've served love in whatever way, mm-hmm. or they've wandered off and become dissociated or disconnected or traumatized or lost or broken or, you know, all the things mm-hmm. those belong to. Like there is a, 
a somatic knowing. But I think what happens is that we, without an awareness of these mythological patterns happening within the psyche, we become over-identified with the split and disconnected from the felt sense of what's driving all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because love is the disillusion of category. Mm -hmm. It's not saying the category doesn't matter. It's saying you're accepted regardless of the category. Mm. Right? And so then the all become the one. And I think that's why love gets associated with the phenomenon of God and all that. Well, I think that that, bringing that back to the Subaru ad, Mm -hmm. right? I think that like the thing that, you know, when I read that, I just felt this anger well up, which Mm -hmm. is like, oh, this is crossing a boundary for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like, oh, we can't get a Subaru now. But we probably will. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely getting super. Stuff <laughs> have to exist in the world. You know? we just have to send an but, email to the marketing team. <laughs> no, because I'm. No, because I'm like not the, here to change the world. You know. Well, the first impulse, it. right, was anger. And I was like, mm, I think it's because there's something off about that. It doesn't sit right somatically with me. I don't agree with that. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Right? That doesn't mean they're evil and mm-hmm. all these things. Right. But. It was implying that, like, love doesn't infuse every single cell of your body dark and light. Right. And everything in between. Yeah. Like, that was the main thing in that ad, that little tiny section in the bottom corner. And I was like, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. That's lying. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is if you think about this idea of love as the dissolution of category, the all accepted, the all coming home into the one, then you know what's really interesting is in so if we look at this religiously, which is this is what I think religions are are feebly pointing toward through narrative structure, is that the end point of religious religions, like if we use the Christian myth again, is atonement. Right, which means at one minute, which means becoming one, which means out there and in here cease to be separate from each other. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the point of I'm I'm now, you know, I, I talked about this in my transformation lecture. It's like what we're transforming toward if it's a if it's a holistic transformation is this point of harmony with being. It's this out there and in here cease to be separate. I don't ask what the meaning of life is because I'm it. I'm no yes. longer separate from it, you know, and that's the invitation I think the actual love gives us. Yes. I don't have words for what I want to say to that because I think we're getting into the word, like language falls short category mm-hmm. totally. here. Um, but I, I, there is some, I was reading a, a book called The New Gnosis um, and it was a comparison between Heidegger, the philosopher Heidegger and James Hillman. So more psychological approach. Mm-hmm. Um and the statements about being and non-being being the same thing and the deep felt sense, like the reverberation in my being that was like, or and non-being, mm-hmm. um, that I felt at reading that, I was like, yes, there is something so true about that and I have no words for it and don't my professors dare make us write a discussion post on this because it was so like beyond putting into right 
any type of language, but there is something so deeply true about that. Yeah, because like, well, language is a it's a it's the art of cutting apart reality and creating categories and dividing it. We can and it it, it serves this important role of being able to like pull like it's just like doing parts work i think in the psyche you know it's like there's a real role to being able to understand all of your different motivations and personalities and desires what they all want Mm -hmm. you know um and at the same time there's also something more ultimate well it's interesting in that book master and his emissary he talks about um music being prior to language Mm. and the evolution of things Mm mm-hmm and talks about like musa language and kind of that evolution of language and i just think that that's really fascinating too coming back to the conversation that we had about soul and music and the connection that the the metaphor of music and the kind of following that into the soul mm-hmm. like i think that there's something that language does fall short right yeah for the soul sometimes totally I think, like, what are some words for you, like, that maintain a a sort of reverence for love or um, an honor for the the type of love that we're talking about, right? Like, if you were to rewrite that script on the Subaru ad... Mm. How would you rewrite it so that it was inclusive of soul, of love? Oh, right on the spot. Yeah. I don't know. I have to, let me think about that a little bit. But like, what I like for love is I like home with a capital H. That's something that's been like sitting with me that I really enjoy. Archetypal home. Yeah, the archetypal home, the place of, the place where you can, where you can finally just put your shit down and be, where you come home and no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done with the, with the inheritance and the money, no matter what it is, you're accepted here. Mm. That to me feels like what love actually is. And I think that we, I think unfortunately, like there's a lot of people with really like misinformed ideas of what love is. And then they're going out and they're, and they're projecting that onto other people, you know, and they're using words like God is love. Like I read, I, we've talked about this on here actually, so we'll go to, into it. But I, read a theology called God is love that I was working with when I was in seminary. And I just, I'm like reading it and I'm like, what you're describing isn't love or God. Like this is what you're describing is a quid pro quo relationship. This is not what love is. And so I like the word home. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember when we first met and you were kind of on this like love kick about God and love and trying to talk about it with me. Trying to F the ineffable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I just couldn't get it. Like, it didn't resonate. I think nobody gets it, but okay. We all fall short. We're all blindly stumbling in the Right, dark. but I think that there is a space where we begin to find our position to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And it was just so disconnected for me. I was just like, what are you talking about? And it was because... I don't think that I had ever experienced that love that we're speaking of at at that up until that point. I mean, that was 28 years of my life. I don't know if I'd ever like even if it was like a pre-verbal experience, I don't think it was there. Mm. Like consciously I didn't experience it. So it was there, but I 
had never consciously connected to it or experienced it. Mm. And so it's a common experience in psychedelics, actually. Like it's a common experience of once the ego structure gets eviscerated, then you see the nature of being without the ego. And if you think about ego, like as the differentiating factor is like the, you know, cause it's like us that, you know, when you're born, let's say you're not experiencing mother as separate or world as separate, but then like, eventually the ego starts to differentiate. This is like Neumann's idea and origins and histories of consciousness. And then the human knows itself as differentiated. And I think one of the things that happens when people do psychedelics is all that differentiation gets blown apart. And then you see what is and you, you end up seeing that it's all love. And I remember just real fast, I was talking to a guy, I I work in a program um, that helps people transition out of the military and I was talking to this guy and he was like, you know, older kind of gentleman, been in the military for 20 years kind of thing, did psychedelics. And I was like, what, what did you think? You know, what did you experience? And he's like, you know, man, all this is love. I was like, you bet your ass it is. <laughs> you know, it's like we, it was well, like a, actually, saw. I want to, I want to talk about this because I think it's important because I do to the core of me believe that that exists without psychedelics. That is the point of myth and mythology being a thing it's built off numinous experience and that's why these stories and patterns play out Mm -hmm. and actually i want to retract my statement about what i said about not experiencing love consciously because i did experience it there was a numinous experience that i had in the like pit like rock bottom pits of a like dark dark period in my life Mm -hmm. like very about to start this new adventure in charlotte and it's interesting because now I reflect back and I'm like, oh, that was definitely love driving that mm. because I like walked into a church, hadn't been in a church in like years and just like cry the whole time. Mm. Like have no idea why I'm crying. Like it's just like, a, a, I don't know. It was that position of like, holy crap, just being overwhelmed by this like numinous energy And at that time, I think I was so consumed in the dark and like identified with the dark and the pits Mm. that I couldn't see that like love actually is in that too. Right. Totally. And I think that's really, really important to emphasize because like sometimes like these experiences or psychedelic experiences, people have this association where it like kind of blasts you into this place of like love and light. Mm Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, you can find yourself in psychedelics in a dark place too. Mm-hmm. But also if you find yourself in a dark place in your life and it kind of blows your socks off, like that also is of God of love as well. Yeah. To the same extent too. Yeah. Well, and I would say that, that you know, the dominant theological idea that's like influenced our culture, even if you're not religious, I promise you that you're getting the reverberations of the reformist teachings. You know, it's like the idea that God is only good. Like that's a huge thing in in Christian theology. And it's like, but then how do you explain all of this bad? You know, I don't want to get into the problem of evil because that's what it's called. And that's what people like rack their brains over. But it is fascinating that like, I don't know, like I do dream work. I'll probably do a podcast on it, but like you interact, I interact with this demon that keeps coming into my dreams that I'm like scared shitless of. And it turns out it actually has like a whole bunch of value for me. 
And it's like, so damn, is even love driving that? And that's so, what you start to realize. If love is all, it is all, no matter how it's presenting to you in your finite self in this moment. So I want to touch on something that you just said because it came up last night when I was doing a transformation collective call. Mm. Jess had said something akin, to, like very close to that. And um, you said, and it actually turned out to be a lot of value to me. What if it wasn't? Mm, then would it be love still? Like the psyche does I not... I would have been a reference to believe that if it hadn't. Right. Think. So I think that's where we can fundamentally change the way that we see the world because that as if statement if you truly believe psyche as if it's real Mm -hmm. it like psyche does not need you to be pleased with the way that it shows up to be considered valid real and made of love right totally and i think that that like shows up so much and Mm. it's just laced in our culture and i think that comes back to what i was saying about the left hemisphere it's like what wants things to have use and utility in the way that we navigate the world. Mm. But actually, if things just were and they had no use and utility and it just was an experience of what is, could you be with that too? Is that love too? Mm. It was a question that I like proposed in our group last night and it was kind of like this, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. But I think that's... Because we don't. Totally. It's really hard to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that like when it comes down to like working and engaging with the psychic stuff that comes up for me personally, like it's very important for me to recognize that like it's really not concerned with me being comfortable at all. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a guarantee. So if that's what you're after, this comfort and this, like... Right. I know, being held always. Like, I don't know if that... that I think that's looking at... But you are always held, is what I would say. Yes. And, or love's not what I'm saying it is. Yes, and I feel like you're... If, if that's the case, you're looking at one archetype in isolation right you're looking for like that demeter type of love that like motherly love that just holds you mm-hmm. but has no verticality verticality to it it's not inclusive of the descent or the ascent it's just being held here but it's knowing that i'm held that gives me the courage to descend the the ability to look at things and and know like even if they're not pleasing or comfortable to me that actually, though, it is all held in this thing that we call love. Well, I think because that, that's what it means that this love is the substructure of our reality. It's holding it all together. That's exactly what people see on psychedelics. I think. Yeah. Have I we reached know. a disagreement? I think we've reached a place where this might go into another deep end. Yeah. So I'm willing to. Cool. Yeah, I'm well, willing to cut it there. I think, I mean, you know, when you try to F the ineffable, like you're going to run into roadblocks left and right. I mean, because it's, it's like you're trying to make sense of the ultimate using finite terms and language. And that's just. Yeah. Really and honestly, to, to claim that I know it would be totally. just a massive hubris. So um, I'm willing to accept that as a stopping point and we can muse on that Later. in the future. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Thanks, well, thanks guys. for having this conversation with me. Yeah. Bye. Thank you.